I gave you a lot of notes here because in a way this can be a complicated topic. Before Christmas, we were going through various aspects of what we call the three ecumenical creeds. That already feels like a mouthful, doesn't it? But the three ecumenical creeds are three creeds from ancient Christian history that all believers have subscribed to and agreed upon, regardless if they say them in a church service or not. And they are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. In essence, how do you summarize the Christian faith and how do you determine who is a Christian and who isn't a Christian, at least in their profession and belief system? Well, that's what the creeds were meant to do. It was to say, this is how we view the world. There's a lot of things we can disagree about, come to different conclusions about, but these are the fundamental truths that summarize what it means to be in communion with the reality that God has established in this world through his son, Christ. And there is a line that some people had been asking about back maybe as far ago as November, possibly this December when we jumped in, and you see it on the screen. He descended into hell. So if you jump to the middle paragraph of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And then here it comes, this little tag. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, etc. It's odd to me. The question I want you to consider today as we go into this, why does this little phrase, he descended into hell, get such considerable treatment despite the fact it gets so little biblical attention. If you were to summarize the Christian faith, let me just kind of put the poll to you. Would you include this in your testimony of faith? I mean, if you had long enough, maybe, but of all the things, here you go, of all the things you can say about Jesus, the Christian faith, the worldview, all the doctrines that you kind of look as being significant, it's odd to me that those early believers thought this one was one that needed to get in there. Now, a couple of disclaimers on it. These creeds have grown over time. None of the creeds were written in one shot and then just boom, they went out. You don't see the phrase, he descended into hell, appearing in the Apostles' Creed until the fourth century. That doesn't make it untrue. It doesn't make it any less valid. But it is something kind of curious that it was something that it seems even that early apostolic faith decided to bring in a little bit later. And as we've been seeing in these creeds, things are brought in to bring clarification or correction to something going off the rails. And so when you think about this phrase, he descended into hell, think about it as bringing correction or clarification to something that people might have been getting wrong with Jesus. Are you with me? All right. So I was trying to think how to navigate through this. And there's so many interlocking concepts here in this phrase because it brings up questions about hell Period. And of course, this is a very emotional topic. It's a scary topic. It's an uncomfortable topic. Who wish hell did not exist? 
right? I certainly do. Um, But there's just too much biblical witness given to it to easily dismiss. So what I'm going to try to do is walk you not only through this phrase, but time allowing how it flows out of a deeper understanding of what hell is all about. I have no delusions that we're going to get through this whole sheet. So I wrote a lot out for things to, you know, kind of pique your thinking on things and uh, you could talk to me afterwards. But let's just jump into the top. What the creeds mean and don't mean. Apostles and Athanasian have the phrase, Nicene Creed doesn't. But we got to start here that these creeds were written, or at least the Apostles' Creed was written in Greek. So it's always good to take a step back from our English words to use the Greek word. And what it would say in Greek is that he or Jesus descended into Hades. Now, when you hear the word Hades, where does your mind immediately go? James Woods. James Woods. All right. Um, That surprised me. I didn't think that's where our mind was going to go, but we'll take that one. Where else? Yeah, that's one example. Underworld, but but for who? Everyone. So so you think about going to Hades? Well, no. In Greek mythology. Greek mythology. There you go. Yeah, it's Greek mythology, isn't it? I mean, I think the typical person, um, if you don't go James Woods, right? Hades is something that we attach to Greek mythology. There is a god called Hades. There's the trio. You've got Zeus, you've got Poseidon, you've got Hades. Who's watching the Percy Jackson release on Disney Plus right now? He'll come into the scene pretty soon. Seems to be pretty good so far. We'll see where Disney takes it. Nonetheless, we've got Hades, who is the god of the underworld. And in all of these ancient pagan mythological systems, the the essence of something or the location of something and the god are always named the same thing. So Hades is both the place or realm of the dead, and it is also the name of the god who the ancient Greek pagans attached with the realm of the dead. They do this with death, they do this with the sea, they do it with everything, all right? You can always just switch out a god's name for a place name, and it seems to work in ancient mythology. So, what is Hades in Greek mythology? Is Jesus saying that the Greek mythological system is true? No, but he's using the cultural term of the day to communicate realities of God. And so, when it says that he descended into Hades, what you got to do is get out of your mind off the bat that this has to mean getting stabbed with a pitchfork, fire in brimstone, like things you see out of Dante's Inferno or Fireside cartoons. Make sense? Think of Hades as a place where dead people go. So if you die, you go to Hades. And that is also true if you correspond it to biblical thinking. We often think of hell as a place of torment and punishment. And sometimes it carries that connotation. But other times it just carries the connotation that you're dead. Period. 
And so, very briefly, when it says, he descended into hell, what this creed was trying to say, Jesus was dead. Stone, cold, dead. Not partially dead, not mostly dead, not I black, I, you know, I flatlined for 20 minutes and then they resuscitated me dead. He was as dead as a human being can be. Now, why do you think an ancient creed might need to bring that line of clarification in to a discussion of Jesus' death? Think about this. What might be sparking this? You have to reinforce that he was actually dead for atonement to logically work, for the forgiveness of sins to be ushered out, for the resurrection to be a true resurrection. But why might someone even challenge the concept that Jesus died to begin with? Yeah, you got it. You got it. We think of the struggle that people have today with Jesus where they have no problem believing that he existed and that was a good moral teacher or something to that degree. I think most people struggle more today to believe he was God than human. But what you see in those early centuries of the time of Jesus, and I'm talking before Constantine, before state religion, before all of that, is that the propensity was different. People had less of a problem believing Jesus was God and more difficulty trying to reconcile with how someone who came from heaven could be a human being. Because here's the thing, gods really don't die. And I know in mythological systems, sometimes you have sort of deaths of gods, but functionally, gods just don't die like people die. And it seems that there was these challenges or questions or lines of thinking that were going up trying to figure out, like, how does Jesus work? And maybe, maybe he didn't die fully. Maybe he didn't die in the same way other people died. Um, maybe he just kind of looked like he was dead, but people got it wrong and he revived. You know, and there's all different kinds of ways people have tried to spin this. What this creed is trying to say is, man, no, he was dead. He was dead because we know he was dead because he went to Hades. And living people don't go to Hades unless your name is Hercules and don't call me on that one, all right? But really, functionally, if you go to Hades, you are in Hades. There is no coming out of Hades in that Greek mythological thinking. And the same is true for the way that we always view death, isn't it? When people die, dead people just don't come back to life which is what makes Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' resurrection miracles so utterly astounding and amazing. It's a way of answering the question, what does dead actually mean? And if you think about that question, it's a little more difficult to define than you might think. Now, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but 
I'll just kind of let you in on something. There is um, an interesting discussion happening right now and among Christian theologians and philosophers in light of scientific advancements and things of that nature of what truly constitutes death. Let me frame it this way. You have a loved one and they're on life support and their body is being functionally kept alive Maybe. At what degree? If your heart is beating, but your brain isn't functioning, are you alive? If you stop breathing, are you alive? If your heart stops beating, are you alive? And if that is your definition of death, that when your heart stops beating, does that mean every time you give CPR, you've just like basically done a resurrection? Well, that feels a little bit off. You might have resuscitated. Have you ever noticed they call it resuscitation, not resurrection? Because they're different things. So do you see what this line is getting at? You got to get out of your head any kind of idea when you confess this or read this, that what it's saying is Jesus had to go suffer more. Jesus was tormented in the pits of hell. That what he accomplished on the cross was halfway but not quite enough and he had to kind of finish the job by suffering in the dominion of the devil. No, no, exact opposite of this kind of thing. It's just saying Jesus was dead. If you grew up in Reformed churches, think like Presbyterian, things like that. It's fascinating. Their more contemporary translations of the Apostles' Creed will say he descended to the grave. It kind of clarifies it there, doesn't it? And that really is the functional meaning of this phrase. But there is another possible log to throw on the fire, which is why Lutheran, Catholic, and other traditions have kept the more literal term hell with this. There is also the idea that when Jesus died, he went to the realm of the dead itself to declare victory over death. So you've got to set it up like a metaphor right now. And just think about it through this image that hell is a place in a capital city of the dead. It is the place where not only the dead people go, but it is a place like a capital today that rules over death in this world, and Jesus is storming the gates of Hades. He's kicking the gates in, saying, death is no longer victorious. Death no longer wins. I am the new king on the block. And while death has been the reigning champion for every ounce of time since Adam and Eve's fall, no longer. Now I am the victor on the block, and death, you have no hold on my people permanently anymore. And so he descended into hell not only becomes a statement of clarification to Jesus being stone cold dead, it also becomes this like, like, like this, this war cry, this, this victory proclamation that death, you have got no hold on our king and you have got, by extension of that, no hold on me or our loved ones or those who are in Christ anymore. Does that make sense? Ends up becoming a really, really cool thing, don't you think? And so, from there, I thought maybe we, what we could get into is different ways 
the word hell is used in the Bible. And that's what the rest of this is going to do. So remember, depending on your definition, everyone who dies goes to hell or only those who are not saved. So I reasonably expect that I am going to die before Jesus returns. I really hope I'm wrong. But going with that, I can, I could fully say with all sincerity that I anticipate going to hell. And if you want to screw with your friends and family, talk that way. Um, and then use it as a way to just screw with their minds and uh, reinterpret things. Because if I'm just referring to the realm of the dead, well, yeah, my stepdad's in hell, my grandma's in hell. I'll probably go to hell if I don't get a chariot of fire or Jesus doesn't return, right? And you will too. Sometimes the Bible uses hell that way. Other times, it talks about it the way that I think we tend to think about it more as a place of separation from God, punishment by God, things of that nature. So let's use some of the words. You've probably heard this before, that we have this tired old English word love, but that Greek has multiple words for love and they have different nuances. You've heard this before. There's like agape and phileo and stagorge and all that. Hell is the same way. You're going to find three words for hell or three words that get translated as hell in the Greek New Testament. And they are Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. All right? It is not a sauce. Hades, Gehenna, and either Tartarus or Tartarus, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And um, I'm going to skip over the English stuff for hell right now. Here we go. Hades. We've already talked about that it's Greek. Two, it's where dead people go. Three, remember, it is value neutral. So talking, look, no one wants to die. No one thinks of death as fundamentally a good thing or the way that life is supposed to be. But it is value neutral in the sense that it is not a place just for punishment or separation from God or alienation of God. It's just just where dead people go. Jesus went to hell. Um, have you heard of the Hebrew word Sheol? Is that a new word to anyone? Yeah? If you read the Old Testament, pay attention to the footnotes, and you're going to see Sheol pop up a lot. It does not translate cleanly out of one simple word, but it corresponds or is very synonymous with Hades. And again, it means something like just the grave. I gave you a few examples here, and I think they're worth looking up. Would someone look up Genesis 37, 35? And you're going to have to read it out loud for me. All right. So just know what you're getting yourself into. Anyone got the Genesis one? Okay. Seriously, you can read and it's not going to bite you. Can someone just please take Genesis 37? All right, Mike, thank you. Someone else, Deuteronomy 34, verse 6. Thank you, Matt. I will do Psalm 6, 5, and someone else do Hosea 13, 14 for me. All right, Kate, gotcha. When you got it, take it, Mike. Whatever it says on your sheet, it should be, unless I got it wrong. 37, 35.
That's right. Okay, so we're hearing a story of grieving. And he says he refuses to be comforted because his son went where? The grave. Sheol is the word behind grave. Now, does that sound like punishment? Does that sound like torment? No, he died. He died and was buried. He went to Sheol or Hades. How about Deuteronomy 34? Now, this is talking about Moses. They buried him in the valley near or of Beth Peor, but to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Now, when you hear it that way, you just think about a six-foot hole in the ground, right? But the word Sheol is being translated grave. He went to Sheol. He went to the, he, he, he's in a state of being dead. He's in deadness, Right? It, it doesn't matter if you're cremated, if you're buried, if your body can't be found, if you're put through a leaf shredder or something like that. I mean, you're just, you're just gone, right? You're in Sheol at that point. Here's Psalm 6. No one remembers you when he is dead. Who praises you from the grave? So the psalmist is crying out, Lord, save me. And he's arguing with God going, I can't worship you when I'm Dead, who, who praises you from the grave? Lord, restore me. Lord, grant me life. Lord, bring me healing. Lord, bring me hope because I don't want to die. How about Hosea? Kate, you had that? That one's a great one, and it's something Paul quotes later on in the New Testament. Say that opening line one more time. I will deliver this people from the power of Sheol, from the power of Hades, from the power of the grave. Why? Because he descended into hell. Okay, so far so good. Makes sense. Now, I gave you a verse list. What you have following is every single verse in the New Testament that uses the term Hades. I highlighted the word that is the Greek word Hades, just to show you how it gets translated in different ways in the Bible. Take a minute or two and just read through the verse list, and then we'll come back up for air. Enough time to work the list? I'm curious, did any of these verses in particular jump out at you or strike you as interesting, strange, odd, or insightful? Revelation 1.18, he says he has the keys of death and Hades, as if they're distinctly different. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, yeah, where Jesus is described as holding the keys of death and Hades. The gates of Hades can no longer lock you in. Jesus has the key. He can let you out. And it's interesting there, they actually don't even translate it. They just keep it. Hades. Yeah. Any others on there? Is it the 
Yeah, it, it, if you're not careful, it almost makes it feel like it's distinct areas. And I'll just say, I would encourage you to think about it as being poetic, where it's like, like it loves repetition. So it, like, it says something, then it says something again, then it says something again. And interestingly, the sea and Hades often went together, or the sea and Sheol often went together in Hebrew thought. And there, there's kind of a logic to this if you think about it. Um, the sea is deep and bottomless, and so it's like an abyss. I mean, it's not bottomless, but it feels bottomless. It's amorphous. It's dark. There's spooky monsters that live in it, right? It swallows you up. If you get stuck in it, you're not getting out. So when Jesus drives the demons out of the pigs and sends them rushing into what? The sea... There's a lot more significance going on there than just, oh, they, they fell in the water and drowned. Likewise, when Jesus walks on the water and the sea is raging against him and he calms the sea, also very significant. And then after Jesus beats it and the sea comes back and tries to do the same thing to his disciples later on, when they're out without Jesus and the sea is raging against them, also very significant. And the Jewish people have never been known for having a great navy or a great merchant um, system of commerce, even though Israel borders the sea. And it's been suggested that it, at least historically, might go back to this where, mm, we don't like the abyss. Think about Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and then the way it goes to describe it is the Spirit of God is hovering over what? Water. Does that mean that water existed before God created? No, it's the metaphor that it's using the formless, void, abyss, and water, and grave all together. And you're seeing that play out in Revelation there. Yeah. Here's one that I find worth noting. And it's Luke 16, fourth one down. It translates Hades, hell. But look how it describes Hades there. Where he was in torment. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Read Luke 16. It'll take you less than 60 seconds. It's where there's a rich man who has every good thing in life, and there's a poor beggar named Lazarus who sits outside his gates, and the rich man pays him absolutely no attention. Even the dogs come and have mercy on Lazarus, but rich man has no time for him, and then they both die, and the rich man goes down to Hades, where Jesus says he is in torment. I bring this up for this purpose. Sometimes... Hades is used value neutral. Sometimes it is used negatively. So you can't correspond a meaning to a word 100% of the time. You have to see how the word is being used because sometimes Hades does refer to a place of separation from God, alienation from God, or judgment by God. And you see that use by Jesus here in Luke 16. Which brings me now to page two. Because there is another word that Jesus likes to use. 
to refer to what we translate as hell, and it is pronounced Gehenna. Give me a good Gehenna. Gehenna. This is a Hebrew word, and I broke it down there for you. It is a compound word, Gehinnam, all right? Or Gehenam. Ga means valley. Ben means sun. Hinnom is a name. So Gehenna is kind of a derivation of Gehinnom, which just means the valley of Hinnom. Well, where is the valley of Hinnom? Right here. This is the south to southwest side of the city of Jerusalem. If you go up the hill, you are going up to Jerusalem. If you come down, you could see this was taken probably in the last 10 years, give or take, um, that there are people who are quite happily living in hell, that there are some roads that lead to hell. And I think the question we all need to ask is, what kind of satellite reception do you actually get if you are in hell? But this is a place Jesus referred to to talk about a place of judgment, separation, and alienation by God. Now, what I'm not indicating is that Jesus says if you, get, if you are alienated from God, separated from God, being punished for your sins, that you're going to have to go live here for a few years. He's using what this valley stood for in his time and place as a metaphor to help people understand pictorially what separation and punishment from God would be like. Does that make sense? Because what Jesus does is the same thing that we do. He takes ideas from the culture to create pictures to help you think. And we do the same thing from hell. That's what I skipped on the first page. Hell is an old English word, H-E-L. If you saw Thor Ragnarok, she actually features in the movie as a god. She's the goddess of the underworld. She's a goddess of destruction. Um, and there's this whole Norse mythology that surrounds it. Well, we don't really think when we talk about hell that people go there, do we? To, to a Norse place, that, oh, the, the Norse got it right. No, we're just drawing on their metaphor. We're borrowing the word. That's what Jesus is doing with this idea of Hades and Gehenna. So it is value negative. Gehenna is never used in a value neutral kind of way. And the real root of Gehenna um, is going to be found in Jeremiah 19. Now, it appears in the Bible before that. And it refers to just this geographic region. So like if I thought McHenry was a terrible place and I just started talking about McHenry as a word picture for a place of torment and judgment, right? That you know you are separated from God if you live in McHenry. You get the idea. That's what Jesus is doing with this area here. Before Jeremiah 19, it's just the Valley of Gehenna. But turn to Jeremiah 19 with me because I think it's worth looking at. I'm going to start reading. If you're not there yet, you'll catch up quick. This is what the Lord says. He's telling Jeremiah, go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders and the people, the priests, and go out to where? You see it? Valley Ben Hinnom, or go out to 
Gehenna, near the entrance of the potsherd gate. There proclaim the words I tell you and say, Hear the word of the Lord. O kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. So Jeremiah is going to the valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, and he is going to give a prophecy against who? Whom? Who's he talking to? He's not talking to the valley. Who's he speaking to? Valleys don't have ears. Yeah, the kings of Judah and the people of Israel. So this is against God's anointed ones and God's chosen ones. You with me? That's who Jeremiah's going to speak to. Let's see. Listen. I am going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. This is Jerusalem, and you've turned the like bordering suburb, if you will, into a place of foreign gods. They have burned sacrifices in it to gods that neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it even enter my mind. So beware, the days are, are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call this place Topheth, don't worry about that, or Gehenna, but the Valley of Slaughter. In this place, I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies at the hands of those who seek their lives. And I will give their carcasses as food to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I will devastate this city and make it an object of scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all of its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh during the stress of the siege imposed on them by the enemies who seek their lives. Then he tells them to break the jar, and it symbolizes things being broken between them and God. You can go on in your own right. Does that sound like good news? Is that the kind of message you want Jeremiah to show up and bring you? And again, it's against the king of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. What's the substance of this prophecy here? Despite the fact that you are God's messiahs, despite the fact that you are God's chosen people, I am going to punish you. And I'm going to punish you, and let me give this to you now. What were the things that really ticked God off? What did they do? What are they guilty of? Hey, they worship foreign gods, right? You're literally in my home in my capital city and you're setting up and worshiping foreign gods. What else? Burning their children. They're giving their children over sacrificially by burning them alive to gods like Baal and Molech. Would you say that's pretty severe on the bad chart? What else are they doing? Don't let this one sneak by you, but see where it notices all the blood of the innocent. 
this has been historically a valley. Like, like, let me back up. We have blood of innocent, we have sacrifices going on, and we have seeking of foreign gods, right? Now, I want to take, man, we're going to run out of time, shoot. But I want to try to help you understand what Jesus is doing here and what's going on. He goes on later to start talking about things like sieges and how you're going to be eating the flesh of your children and how you're going to be eating each other's carcasses and things like that. And to me, that starts to feel like a horror movie, and I think rightfully so. But I think sometimes we go the wrong way with it. This is how I used to kind of go with it. It was the idea that, man, people have just gotten so wicked, they've gotten so crazy, they've gotten so evil that they're even eating each other. Well, okay, maybe, but I think there's a better way of understanding it. Why are they eating each other? Why logically might you eat a human being? Because you're starving. And why logically might the people of Jerusalem be starving? Take, take famine out. Because of a siege. What's a siege? Well, a siege is a way that one army comes to try to take control of another city. And how do you do it? Well, you don't want to go blow for blow because that's a lot of bloodshed, especially to you. You don't want to try to storm a city because when you're in the defensive high ground, the odds are in their favor. So what do you do? You set up a blockade. You surround the city and you don't let goods in or goods out. So you basically starve them out. Does that make sense? And so what you're getting the idea here is Jerusalem, I'm handing you over. This was supposed to be the kingdom of God, but I'm going to hand you over to the enemies, people like the Assyrians, people like the Babylonians, and they are going to lay siege to you. And they all knew full well what siege meant and the impact of what siege had. By the way, you can read the Jewish historian Josephus, who talks about the siege of Rome on Jerusalem in 70 AD, and he describes with horrific detail this exact Jeremiah 19 stuff happening, where people were so famished that mothers started to eat their children and kill their children to feed to their family because food was so scarce. It's kind of hard to imagine hunger, isn't it, in a 21st century Western perspective? This is what's going on. Nations come and attack. And you don't seek me. You seek foreign gods. And even when nations don't come and attack, you are so eager to seek these other gods rather than me. And God doesn't have a lot of love for idolatry. But worse... The violence being done. There's no, no reverence for my will, for my covenant, for my way. This is a place where innocents are being slaughtered, right? It's a place where you're going so far is that you're literally sacrificing your kids in fire to these foreign gods to try to get whatever you think you can get out of them. So this place becomes loaded with imagery, just like if I was to say East St. Louis or Gary, Indiana. Isn't that more than a geographic location? Or if I said the south side of Chicago. Doesn't that kind of carry imagery with it? That's how you need to think of Gehenna. It is a place that in Jesus' day was known for horrible atrocities, for siege, for suffering, for punishment, you getting the idea here? 
And so what Jesus does is he takes this term to talk about what future end times or eschatological judgment will look like from God. He uses Gehenna. Um, I think what I'm going to do is call it a day because we're a little bit farther than I wanted to go today. But fold this up and bring it back. And if it's interesting, we can uh, talk just a little bit more about this. If not, we'll move on to other pastures and certainly greener pastures. But thanks for coming. God bless. Have a great Sunday.